0: Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I venture into the world of technical analysis with Andrew Thrasher, CMT and portfolio manager for Financial Enhancement Group and founder of Thrasher Analytics, an independent financial market research firm focused on technical analysis. We talk generally about what technical analysis is and Andrew walks us through a concrete example of how one might utilize technicals, both as a standalone tool and how it might be combined with fundamental analysis. We then talk through his paper forecasting a volatility tsunami in which was a Charles H. Dow award-winning paper. Andrew does a great job of giving us an overview of technical analysis and how investors can utilize technicals in their investment process at both a macro and micro level. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Andrew Thrasher. Hi, Andrew. Thank you
2: for joining us today. I appreciate having me on. It's, it's good. It's, it's nice to come on a podcast with people I, I truly respect, and I, I do listen to your guys' show, so it's I'm very familiar with what, uh, some of the guests, so it's an honor to uh, to come talk with you guys.
0: Oh, that's great. Thank you so much. Well, we're excited to talk about you and your area of expertise, technical analysis, which is very different than our style of investing. But um, one of the things that we try to do here is talk to people that have different views and different areas of focus in the market to help our listeners and the people that watch this podcast sort of learn about other methods of investing. So today we're going to do, I think, a pretty deep dive uh, into technical analysis, what it is, how you use it how it might be able to be blended with other approaches um, of investing. Um, and so I, I guess to start, maybe the question I want to lead with is what, how did you get interested in technical analysis?
2: Yeah, my my kind of the ele- my short elevator pitch of a biography, um, I always wanted to be a lawyer from probably middle school. Uh, one, to, one to be a lawyer. Um, originally, it was corporate law and it was probably entirely monetary from seeing lawyers on TV that looked rich and they were always work for a company. I'm sure that's the reason why. Uh, but then, senior year, we did like the, the stock trading where they do the virtual stock trading to teach you at the market. Um, and that was for me, 2004. Um, so it was after the, the, the dot com bubble. Um, And got really into virtual trading and ended up managing some of the other kids in my classes' portfolios, won the competition, got really into finance, um, went to Purdue to study financial planning, uh, and then started getting more, started out as an analyst, kind of the same most path that most portfolio managers take, become an analyst to somebody else, and slowly take on more responsibility. Um, But reading, I started out reading Benjamin Graham, reading about fundamentals, that's what they teach you in school um, at, at Purdue, it was all about fundamentals, valuations, cash flow, all that. So that's where I kind of, kind of started uh, my journey in finance. Um, and then learning, watching the charts. So I look at a stock and say, okay, this is what the valuation says. This is when Buffett would probably be buying it. And then kind of doing a back test, kind of a manual back test of that. So okay, look at this stock. This is what the valuation is. And then the market never respected it. And it just that kept happening. And I was like, well. The, The market doesn't know what the valuation is supposed to be and kind of having that realization of, well, why don't I just buy what the market is at least respecting the price of. And so learning about technical analysis and starting to study all that, got my CMT, and it just, for me, the idea of a price action and the supply and demand characteristics of that made a lot of sense. And so I still still value valuation and that there are underlying businesses here when you're looking at individual equities, um, but my primary lens is, is still looking at that price action and, and evaluating that as kind of a sentiment lens to the market of how people are actually transacting, um, and that's kind of now my my main focus for uh, for trading and managing client accounts.
0: You know, I think it's interesting those student managed funds at places like Purdue and other universities. That is a very important. It gives you know, young college kids, real time, real life exposure to managing actual money. And it, you know, puts a lot of people like yourself on track to go into finance and investments. Um, So that's great. Um, If you could just broadly define technical analysis in your mind, you know, how would you go about doing that? I I think you did part of it in your response there, but, you know, maybe from a definition standpoint, how, how do you define it?
2: I think technical analysis is just the evaluation of price, and it's through supply and demand, through buyers and sellers coming together to determine the price of an asset, security, commodity, whatever it is. Um, I think it's just the, the analysis of the, the change in price, and then that we throw a lot of different indicators and a lot of different stuff on top of that. But I think it all boils down to just evaluating the change in price of a market security, futures contract, whatever it is, but um, just the sub- evaluating supply and demand.
1: We're going to talk about some of those indicators uh, in, in a minute, but before we do, I wanted to sort of ma- ma- see if you could maybe help us with a problem we have, which is, you know, we, we use a lot of momentum strategies for clients, mm-hmm. you know, which just have prices and input. And one of the things we, one of the challenges we always have using momentum is clients always want to have a reason why they're buying something. So, you know, the, the reason of the price is going up sometimes is not sufficient. They want to say, oh, it's, it's, it has a great valuation or there's trends in fundamentals or something like that. And I'm wondering, how do you think about it when you try to explain to people why techno- technical analysis works? Because it clearly does work. Why, why do you, how do you explain to them why it works?
2: Why technical analysis or more momentum?
1: Yeah, no technical analysis in okay. general, just, just using price, you know, is without considering all those fundamentals and, and things like that. How, why is that a successful strategy?
2: I think, it, and I think if you even kind of look at the momentum component of it um, as I don't know when this will air, but we're, we're kind of the week of Thanksgiving and you have Black Friday coming up and you have people that camp outside, Target and Walmart and Best Buy, and you have these frenzy of people that want to get inside because there's good deals there. Um, and I think part of it's not just the fact that they can get a TV for $50 or whatever it is that that morning. It's the fact that you, you see all these other people doing the same thing. And so when you have a lot of people, a lot of demand for a certain good, then it, it brings more people there. The reason everyone waits outside Disney World to get in isn't because they have the best rides in the world. Some people maybe think they do, but um. And I have no knack against Disney, that's where I proposed to my wife, but the people love to go to Disney World because everyone else does too. And so when you're able to look at that and say, everyone else is wanting to do something, I want to do it too, That moment, that's essentially momentum, it's pushing it, the buyers keep pushing the price higher and higher, In technical analysis is just analyzing that. It's seeing where is there a strong demand for this price that's pushing it higher. The only reason that something can go higher is because there's a lot of demand for it, um, whether it's they say algorithmic trading, or if it's because Buffett's buying it, or if it's because a hedge fund, or if it's a meme stock, where a bunch of people online are all buying half shares in the Robinhood account. There's enough demand that's pushing that stock higher. And then the reverse is the same. When there's a lot of sellers, it's doing the opposite, pushing it lower. And so technical analysis is just trying to review that activity and then apply different methodologies of, of analysis to see where is there a lot of demand and where is there a lot of supply and then just trying to capitalize on potential opportunities that come from that.
1: That's great. That's one of the better ways I've heard it explained. So we wanna, we wanna talk about some of the tools you have available as a technical analyst. And so we, we thought maybe looking at sort of the market in general, and obviously we're not trying to predict where the market's going right now. Yeah. It's more to use this as an illustrative example of how as a technical analyst you might analyze a particular asset. So I'm wondering if, just, if you could talk about maybe the broad categories, like the broad categories of things you,
2: were, you would be looking at if you were looking at the market in general right now. Yeah, so I think it, it kind of starts with, you just look at it first, use the S&P as kind of our, our standard example looking at just the pure price action of the S&P. Is it going higher or lower? And to find a long-term trend, is it making higher highs or is it making lower lows? And then just get the overall trend of it. Then we can slap on a moving average, which is just an average of of a certain look back period, 200 days, 50 days are pretty common. And people look at those because that's where the average price often will, you'll see the price respect these moving averages because it was the average price over that, that time period. And so I, we can look at charts later and I can show some examples, but look at are those moving averages going higher or lower as well? So kind of giving an idea of, of the overall trends. And then so we have these different things we can apply to price that are just smoothing mechanisms, moving averages. Um, and then we have oscillators, things that use price as a second derivative. So common ones are the MACD or relative strength index, which is a momentum gauge um, commonly used over like a 14 day period. Um, and these are these oscillators are gonna help tell us is momentum strong or weak. And then some people will use them saying they're overbought or overdone because they're viewing it that momentum as a rubber band and that rubber band can only stretch so far before it has to contract again. And so when momentum gets overly stretched, then that maybe price is gonna have to release some of that pressure and come back down. Or if it's overstretched on the downside, it's gonna come back up. Um, so people will use those indicators in different ways. One way that I prefer to use um, some of those momentum indicators is looking at the range they're in when stocks are going up or since we're using the s&p when the s&p is going higher typically momentum will be in a bullish range meaning that the lower levels of that rsi indicator to use that one as the example will stay typically above around 45 to 50. if it's kind of finding finding support not to support but but low levels in the 45 to 50 range that's telling us momentum's in a bullish range it's being supportive of the buyers of price going higher and then when the opposite is true, when it's, it's kind of hitting resistance around 60, that means that momentum is really, really bearish. And it's, staying, it's giving more support to those sellers or the downward price action. So looking at the range of momentum can help us tell us kind of what kind of regime or, or um, where the, the primary trend is for that market. Um, I think those are kind of the main tools, that technical analysis. Then you can get into Fibonacci and, and you can get some of the other rabbit reproduction stuff um but which is what fibonacci originally was for i'm not a big fan of fibonacci um but relative momentum indicators oscillators a lot of second derivatives of price um are kind of the main categories without getting too nuanced with some of the the gan stuff and elliott wave and um you can get really deep down into the rabbit hole of technical analysis but those are the those are kind of the main categories probably the smoothing of price and then some oscillators
1: I notice you you do tend to tweet um, some breath stuff out fairly frequently. Yeah. Uh, how do you think about the whole breath of the market and how that plays in, into your toolbox as a technical analyst?
2: Yeah, I look at breath a lot, um, and I've really been focusing a lot recently on a lot of the drawdown breath tools. Uh, and I think there's different ways to evaluate breath. And I just wrote a blog post yesterday that that looked at a drawdown and mentioned that it's only one tool of breath. Um, often the most popular tool probably is looking at the percent of stocks above certain moving averages. How much of the S&P is above the 200-day or above the 50-day or how many stocks are hitting 52-week highs or three-month highs, slicing and dicing the market different ways to determine what the participation is of the overall trend. At the end of the day, the S&P 500 or whatever index you're looking at, or if you're just looking at one sector, is just a culmination of the price of of that of that index or of that sector what are the individual securities doing are they going up and or down with the overall index that can tell us the level of participation um, whether it's broad or narrow and whether that trend is healthy when we have a lot of stocks going up that's a great sign for the market or that sector that that trend could continue because you have a lot of the stocks are, are doing what the index is doing When that reverses, and we saw that happen in 2018, we're starting to kind of see it happen now, but pretty much most major declines are preceded, large declines are preceded by participation falling off, where a lot of stocks start to go down and eventually you just have a handful left, we call them "bang stocks today, that are really driving price action higher. And then once they break, there's really not a lot of left support to hold that index higher and the index begins to confirm the breadth divergence lower. So I think breadth is a great way to look at the health of the market, the, to measure the participation of the individual stocks. And we can slice and dice it a hundred different ways. Um, and as a technician, I spend a lot of time doing that, looking at it from different angles, different look back periods, um, to see is are we seeing a lot of participation or not a lot of participation in that equity trend. Well,
1: how- do You look at the, the idea of conviction when you're looking at all these tools. So you, you have a lot of different tools you're using. Mm-hmm. Is it really just a matter of like when a lot of these are agreeing, I have very high conviction or are there certain ones that you think are really much more important
2: than other ones when you look at it that from that perspective? I definitely think there probably is a, um, in my mind, a hierarchy for the things that I'll look at. And actually, so I, I manage money for an RA. I also run for Analytics, which is a, a weekly letter I send out, um, tri- primarily for more institutional level technical analysis to give my views on the market and also i have a lot of different models that i put in there and so um when i first started doing it when i about last year um some of some of my subscribers said hey you share a lot of information is there a way to boil this down into just one thing i'm really busy just tell me is it bullish or bearish all these all this data you're, you're throwing at us and so i took that and created what i call like my market health report and so it takes all this stuff breadth momentum sentiment volatility, and gives it down to just a single, single data set. And so that tells me, is the market healthy or is it not? Is this uptrend worth being bought? Is the dip worth being bought? Or should we be looking for selling opportunities? And so by taking all that and boiling it down to one thing, then I can say, okay, all this data ag- aggregated is telling me this. Um, and I can share it. I can show it to you later if you want to um, do a share screen, or I can, I can send it to you. You can post it on on um, during the during this this interview. but. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's helpful to be able to look at the individual components, but then also say, what is all this saying in concert? Because I think as, as portfolio managers or analysts, we really are kind of a conductor of an orchestra, and you have to understand how the different components of your, 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 um, your band or whatever you're, you're conducting is, is doing, is the flute's really, really too loud, and you need to kind of focus on bringing them down, is the bass from the, uh, the, the drum section, not keeping up. And you really need to figure out what components you need to be focusing on to bring it all together to make one perfect sound. And that's where the data for technical analysis kind of comes together where there's a lot for us to look at, um, but how can we we hone it to get what the kind of uh, the music we're trying to play.
1: That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, as, as a way to sort of illustrate this, I know you, you brought a few charts with you. Um, yeah. So for, for the people following us on YouTube, maybe, maybe you could share them and just maybe given an idea of how you might look at the charts and how you might use them to analyze the
2: market? Yeah, sure. Here I can uh, do a shared screen here. Yeah, so here's um, kind of the, what we first started talking about with those. Um, so this is a weekly chart of the S&P. And so we kind of see when I was talking about the range. So here's that momentum, the relative R- relative strength index for the RSI. And I put a black line just at 50. So you can see here from kind of from 2009 till we had the, the kind of the crash, that momentum pretty much stayed the, the low here about 46, 45 momentum stayed in this bullish range that entire time. We had COVID crash. Look at the current market. We're continuing to see momentum has been staying in this bullish range. We never really have gotten a break under 50 um, using a weekly time frame. Um, which because I manage money for some of the accounts we manage are, are longer term. And so we do want to kind of focus more on weekly charts. Other ones we do do daily. Um, but kind of looking at the broad picture of the market, it's the momentum right now is in a bullish range. We're staying in right above 50, never dipping down as the market continues to go higher. So some of the other stuff I have on here, I talked about the percent of stocks above certain moving averages. That's what this green line is. Percent of stocks above the 200 day moving average. And a great example of some of those divergences, we look back at 2018, we had this decline in the fourth quarter. We had um, about 80% of stocks back in January, 2018, were above the 200 day. And this trend just continued to go lower till we got to about 68 at the final high um, at the end of September, October and 18. And then the market started to correct. And so then we had the market continue to go higher, more stocks going to back above the 200-day moving average. Great sign, bullish, COVID crash, basically nothing was left trading above the 200-day moving average. Then this year, we've continued to have this recovery, got all the way up to over 95% of stocks got above their their 200-day moving average. And now we're starting to see it kind of come back down. We're at 70% um, right now. That's not terrible. It's not 90, we're not gonna sustain 95 forever, but this this is starting to weaken here. So it's a little bit of a concern, but still it's more than half um, of the stocks are above their 200 days, so not not too terrible. Last one I would point to is this this very bottom one and here I'll kind of shorten it. Um, This is the average drawdown. So talk about how I like to look at a lot of drawdown statistics. And what's the average stock doing? What's the benefit of looking at drawdown is when you're looking at the moving average one, you have, two, you have two inputs there. You have the moving average, and then you have the price. Did the price go below the moving average because the moving average was going too fast because price was kind of stagnating? Kind of like what, what the Russell 2000 has done this year where it really went nowhere. In that case, a lot of moving averages caught up to, to the small cap. Drawdown, we can really see how our stocks performing. And so here, looking at the 2007 peak, we can see that um, in early in June, we saw that the drawdown data began to, to, to bottom out. Then it rose to about 8% at the top. Um, the average stock was down 8% at the very peak in 2007. Then we got up to the average stock being down over 47%. Then that data came back down, um, continued to have really good performance and drawdown, came back down, came back down. And then in 2018, once again, In January, the average drawdown was only about 5% at the peak. But the time we got to the fourth quarter, the average stock was down 9%. So the market was making new highs, but the average stock was seeing a much larger drawdown, um, meaning that we weren't seeing a lot of good, healthy participation. And eventually, the market then corrected. Then we came into the flash crash. Average stock was down about 40%. Um, And then here, once again, this is something I've really been looking a lot at. Is the average drawdown now? In April, we again got down to about five, four and a half, five percent. Today, we're, we're just about ten percent. The average stock is down about ten percent. Um, looking, at, this is the same chart, but looking a little bit more granular. Average decline right now nine point seven. If we look at how many stocks are down twenty percent, actually fourteen percent of the S and P five hundred is already off twenty percent. And 34% is already down 10%. So we're seeing a lot of stocks that are actually going down right now, meaning we're, we're continuing to rally, but it's on the back of just kind of a handful of securities. Um, most of the market is basically in a correction already, uh, even though we're essentially a percent and a half from being at a 52-week high. Take a step further, look at the average The average sector. So here's the average sector drawdowns. Consumer... Uh, uh, communication sector, the average stock in that sector is down 20% already. Um, healthcare average stock is down 11 consumer staples down 10, really the best performing one, or the one with the healthiest drawdown figures is, is real estate. It's only average stock is down four and a half percent. And then we have financials at five. So we can see, we're starting to see some of these figures starting to go down. Um, healthcare, uh, is, had previously been at about 10% and now we're down to 11 just from the, the in one month. Um, so we start seeing a lot of these sectors go down. Like I said, only three of them are already down over 10%. Two of them are just kind of on that razor's edge. Um, and so I think that's, that's not a great sign um, where we start seeing these drawdown expand. So I said, okay, does that mean we're going to crash? I get that question a lot on Twitter. Not every chart is one that's going to precede a crash. What this tells us, and I don't view this as a timing tool, but I view this as a environment identification. This shows the environment right now is, is kind of becoming more ripe for a, a, a move lower, but price hasn't, respect, hasn't acknowledged it yet. And so maybe we see the S&P ignore this, this data and we continue to ride on the back of the FANG stocks into year end and into first quarter. But below the surface, um, it, it doesn't look great from, a, from an individual drawdown perspective. Or from a sector perspective.
0: When you—that was kind of a long-winded
2: answer for your first question.
1: But <laughs> oh, that was
0: great. No, that was awesome. Yeah. Can you? Um. So when you're looking at those types of charts and you're seeing those types of patterns, do you personally try to um, ask yourself as to the why that might be happening, or does that not really come into your thought process? Are you not? trying to create or think about a narrative it's just this is the technicals this is what the charts are showing and you want to respect that like how do you think of that
2: so i'll kind of answer it two ways how some technicians do it and how i do it some technicians entirely do not care about the why at all they don't care if it's because natural gas prices are going higher because putin is is withholding supply to europe and what's going on in asia i mean they don't care about the why all they care about is nat gas is going higher Um, I do to some degree want to know why the cattle says, is it, and the reason for this is the price doing what it's doing entirely because of supply demand, or is it doing it because there was a news related event? Is there, is something, is it the, our stay at home stocks is Peloton, Zoom, Teladoc, are they going to the moon because we're on COVID lockdown? Or is it because there's just a lot of buyers randomly for these three securities? So I do try to find out, is there an underlying macro reason something's happening and um, then have that flow into the price analysis. Um, and sometimes I get it wrong. Um, I thought that coffee prices wouldn't get this high, uh, even though there has been severe supply issues in Brazil with, with coffee. Um, it, and my call for coffee to come back down was, was wrong. It's continued to go higher. So even understanding the reasoning, um, I thought still that price was too stretched in coffee, for, for the example. Um, so even understanding why the reason was, I was still wrong. Um, but I do try to understand if there is a reason. Um, but it's, it was always considered secondary to the price action.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, I think in, just in terms of dealing with clients and investors, you know, oftentimes you are discussing the why behind it. You know, the market might be starting to get weak or sell off, and so the question then is, you know, well, why is that happening? Is it going to go down further? I mean, th- mm-hmm. these are the types of questions that you know we get, and I know you guys get at your firm, and so. That the fact that you, you are thinking about it, I think, is makes sense.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, client, client clients don't love the fact that it's oversold, and that's why I bought it. Or <laughs> right. <laughs> How do you do you? So, we just l- looked at all those different
0: charts. How much of your process is any of it systematic? I mean, because I, we run some momentum strategies, so we know we can rank stocks by relative strength or rank stocks by intermediate term momentum and then create screens or build portfolios off of that. So I would consider that like a systematic way to use price momentum. Mm -hmm. But in your case, are you mostly in there looking at individual charts like that or are you, is there some sort of automation systematic aspect to your investment process?
2: Um, Both, so we do have a systematic process, actually that's momentum driven. So we do a monthly, um, rebalance for our sector overweights, so that's entirely systematic. It's, a, it's a, a system that I built that does an adjustment to vol- vol- using volatility, but not in the sense of how most people view volatility to adjust momentum um, and really looking at the path of sectors that have gone and evaluating that versus just looking at two endpoints say, um, to evaluate momentum. So it's kind of my own take on a way to do a, a systematic rebalance on momentum. Um, and that's how we do our, our sector overlays our models. And it's entirely systematic. I could be hit by a bus and someone still could could run that screen and, and know which ones to be in, uh, involved with. Um, we I also run systems on looking for opportunities in individual sectors using algorithms um, that I've built that are entirely run. And when they, when they hit certain levels, it is systematically purchased. Um, we don't have algorithms that do the buying, but it um, creates my list. And when they hit certain levels, I do respect it and execute them. Um, so, but then, but a lot of the other Probably 80% of the portfolio is more driven from discretionary type, type analysis.
0: Okay. Um, you had mentioned that you use, I think in your overall market indicator in your newsletter, mm-hmm. that that's bringing in a bunch of different things, including sentiment. So what, what measures are you using to measure sort of the uh, investor behavior and the, the excitedness or maybe you know how, the, how they're feeling about stocks in the market?
2: Yeah, so the two that I find the most interesting, I, so I use Daily Sentiment Index, which is like a proprietary um, data set uh, sold by tradefutures.com. Um, it's, they produce daily sentiment readings for all the futures markets. I find that really interesting um, when it gets really, really high or really, really low. Uh, that's really the only time I think sentiment is useful is when it's at an extreme. Um, the other one I find interesting is, is the survey done by the National Association, uh, NAIIM, the Fund Manager Exposure Index. I think it's really interesting when that gets at extremes. Like right now, it's been trading above 100, which means the average fund manager is actually leveraged long equities when they're going, when it's over 100. Um, or if it's extremely low, I think that's interesting. So, those are the two main surveys that I look at. Um, we often, we also use commitment of traders data to look at posi- um, actual positioning within futures markets, um, both commodity and financial. And I think that can be a great resource. That's probably one of the most underutilized, I think, data sets out there that's free um, that anyone has access to. If you just do the work is commitment of traders um, to actually be able to see what the positioning is every single week within these markets and be able to see how it changes, how large traders, commercial traders are, are moving. I think can be extremely insightful. Um, it's not going to be the, the golden ticket to, to profit. Um, but I think it provides great insight more so than, than a survey done by AII or University of Michigan or anything like that. This is where people are actually putting their dollars and it's free. And that's why I don't, I pay for a lot of data, um, but this one's free and still I see people underutilize it all the time. Um, it's great. I look at it probably about two hours every week going through every single one of them.
0: Wow. Nice. Yeah. The fact that it's free is good.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's. It's, it's it's hard data to really to scrub and to make mm-hmm. into a, a usable format and so that, if you have a, a good charting software it can do it but there's a lot of websites out there that make cot data easy to read and free uh if people are willing to put in the work
0: how do you and your firm think about blending technical and fundamental analysis and if if you uh, do do that you know we we know we're not going to talk about company specific examples but maybe give like a hypothetical a recent example that you actually did do it where maybe it helped or maybe it didn't help, but how do you guys look at that?
2: Yeah, so uh, I, I co-manage our, our accounts with um, a person who's a CFA, our chief investment officer. Um, and so he's been a CFA for a long time and he actually fully respects the technical side and, um, and still uses charts himself within his, his view, but he's listening to conference calls, doing the, the cash flow analysis or whatever it is uh, CFAs do with balance sheets. Um, when I first started I had to listen to conference calls and oh I couldn't do it um, but we do so with the, with the way we manage our portfolios it, there's some blending and there's some separation where there's things that he wants to put into the portfolio um, for certain models that are entirely valuation-based or fundamentally based um, and so I respect that that he's got these positions and he does the same with, with things that I want to own that I feel they're entirely technical um, if it's we'll maybe increase position sizing when we both come together and he says, you know what, this makes a lot of sense. I think the company is going to continue to grow in value or whatever. And I think the price action sets up well. Um, When we have those situations, it's great. Um, We view it kind of like shooting from a rifle to where he's kind of maybe picking some of the stocks that have the best bullets and that's the right bullet for our gun. And then I can use the scope to really get the price and get our timing on it. Um, And I'll really do a lot of the timing work for stuff he does want to buy. If he says this company makes a lot of sense, I say, hey, the chart looks like crap. Uh, no, you're the only person that wants to buy this right now because it's just going straight down. Then he'll respect it and say, okay, well, let's at least watch it. And if the chart starts to firm up, maybe we can get a better entry. And we have that, that's, we've had a lot of success with that methodology to where he gets kind of the, maybe the, the right, right idea and I'll help get us the right price um, for, for our portfolios or on the exit to where it's, it's very hard to time and exit using valuation um, and so I can help say, hey, I think this is starting to be right for us to take profit in. Or, hey, we maybe need to hit a stop on this because our thesis isn't playing out um, because of some of the stuff I'm seeing in the charts. And we'll use technicals to kind of get out. So mm. using technicals to get in and, and to get out um, with valuation is kind of a screener for what to be looking at. It's probably the best way to describe it.
0: Yeah, you know, it's, we have a research service, and I've often heard over the years, guys that use the technicals are like, this is good, for idea generation, but the charts on these names—if it's like a deep, some of these deep value yeah. strategies, where it's just buying the most beaten-up stuff—which, you know, when that works and that value starts to work, you get this excess return. But you know, a lot of guys wait for the charts to give them some indication this thing isn't going down further.
2: Yeah, yeah, it, it, that, that's a great—that's a great point. And I think I think that's why I think that's when people totally ignore one methodology entirely, they're really missing. Um, a lot of a lot of great characteristics that they could really enhance maybe the way they're managing money. Um, I couldn't I couldn't entirely do valuation, um, but I, I have a lot of respect for what it can bring to the table. And so when he has um, something to say that that, that brings value from a valuation lens, um, I, I definitely don't want to dismiss it.
0: I wanted to ask you, have you seen any like changes in the technicals since? the, rebound since March of last year. I mean, is there anything we know that retail traders are much more involved here? You have, you know, the option dealer activity and just overall, is there any, is there any like change that you've been able to see in the technicals or, or not really? It's just the, the technicals are what they are and there's no patterns that look different than what have they have in the past.
2: So since COVID, we don't really get too involved in the meme stuff. Um, some advisors, I know, they, they try to play it and they're scrubbing Reddit forums for idea generation. Um, that's something we don't get too involved with. So the securities that, that we're trying to get, um, one, just to get the liquidity in for us to be able to, to transact. It's, if, it's, if it's not an ETF, um, we're not going to play around with some of these super volatile names. Uh, but something that, that probably has changed or maybe has been different has been some of the breadth work. So breadth started kind of looking not great during periods of the summer where we started to peak and started it started less participation because it was entirely kind of based off uh, those thing names where we originally had equal weight um, indices were, were doing really well and we're starting to see a broadening out. A lot of stocks were doing great and that started to, to, to go down. And so I started getting more bearish, but waiting for price to confirm it. Said, okay, here's the underlying thesis where breadth doesn't look great, but maybe price will ignore it. And eventually it did. We got a 5% pullback in September. Woo. Um, it wasn't anything. Normally the, the price reaction is much stronger for how bad the, the birth data looked. So I don't know if that's related to what happened to COVID, but this this past summer, um, the setup from the internals looked bad. And we got a 5% reset and went back to new highs and the data improved. Um, during October, we got a, a much stronger um, bounce back in, in stocks, we saw small caps break out. And now again, we're seeing it again where the, the internals don't look great again, small caps again rolled over and it's entirely reliant on just a handful of these stocks. Um, we've seen that story play out again. I think if, we, if that happens again, where we don't see the market respect what's going on with the internals, like it did in 2018, um, in 2007, in 2012, and 2015, every other time the market's gone down, then I think maybe there has been a, a change in the market dynamic. And we have to kind of re- maybe reevaluate um, what's entirely driving uh, the securities market.
1: We want to shift gears here and talk about an excellent paper you wrote, uh, Forecasting a Volatility Tsunami, which you won a Charles uh, Dow Award for. Um, and, but before we get into the, the details of the paper, I want to maybe set some of the definitions for people who aren't familiar with some of the, the concepts we're going to discuss. So I was wondering if first you could maybe tell us, the, you're, you're going to use the VIX, uh, the measure of volatility in the paper. And I was wondering if you could talk about what the VIX is and maybe what it measures.
2: Yeah. So VIX, the volatility index, is a gauge of volatility um, that the inputs of it are the options market for the S&P 500. And so it's evaluating what the market thinks of volatility based off the trading of the S&P. And then there's volatility gauges for other indexes, but the VIX is for the S&P. And it's it's simply wanting to look at the volatility over the next month. Um, And so we have futures markets that will look at certain periods, but the spot VIX is just a rolling one month. How volatile will the options be over that time period? Um, when and so it's often viewed as kind of a sentiment gauge because when VIX is very low, the market's very um, kind of. The expectations are that volatility will will continue to stay low. When it was trading like 2007, we we're getting in single digits VIX because the market was like very confident. Um, that it would stay there. On the flip side, during COVID crash, we see these big spike higher in volatility, the market's very fearful. It thinks that the current volatility we're seeing, the current downside risk will, con- will continue into the future. And so it starts pricing these high levels of volatility, these high uh, amount of wiggles in the market to, to continue. Um, and so we can capitalize on that as, as, as traders and analysts to use volatility as a gauge of market sentiment um, going forward both when it's very very low or when it's compressed as i wrote my paper or when we have these big spikes and, and try to evaluate what that means going forward.
1: another measure you used in the paper was the vvix yeah. um, so could you just briefly define what that is
2: so it's the same thing except instead of how the vix uses the options for the s p 500 vvix uses the options for the vix mm. so the vix is a is kind of a one standard deviation um, from from the s p then you have vvix that's kind of the uh, Once deviation from the VIX, so it's just using the inputs to determine how volatile will the VIX be. So V VIX is volatility of the VIX, and I'm sure eventually we'll get someone that will create the volatility volatility. I mean, we'll probably keep getting these coming out. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised, but right now we just have two, and I'm okay with that.
1: The, the triple V VIX. Yeah, we, it's we coming. I'm sure. You can make that as your own proprietary indicator. TBOE will come
2: out with it. Just watch. <laughs>
1: Um, Before we get into some of the things that some of the conditions you saw were present Mm -hmm. before these volatility spikes, I want to first talk about how you defined a volatility spike. So what what were the conditions that you considered a volatility spike in the paper?
2: So one of the things that are sacrilegious when people talk about volatility is using it as a percentage, because VIX is essentially a percentage. Um, So whenever we talk about um, VIX in percentage terms, some people get really upset. But when you write about the VIX, it's very hard to not talk about spikes without using a percentage. So I, I do. And so in the paper to define it, I simply looked at just, I think I believe the paper I wrote a 35% increase in volatility over 10 days um, was enough to, to classify as a vex. Most big spikes fell in that category. Um, and my purpose with the paper wasn't so much to, to print out a trading plan for someone, but more to identify a way of evaluating the market. So the actual definition of, of a spike or the definition of what, the um, dispersion, which I'm sure we'll get to next, is was less important as the actual concept of it. So when the market, so I now describe any material increase in volatility more than a two-point jump or a 5% increase in the VIX, something that is going to get CNBC to have breaking news on. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: you alluded to this a little bit already, but so what, in general, just at a high level, what were the conditions that you sort of saw present in the market before these volatility spikes? What were the common things that were present?
2: Yeah, so the paper looked at dispersion, which is just a fancy way of saying standard deviation, which is even a fancier way of just saying if you held a beach ball underwater, the longer if you keep pushing it down, it's going to build up this pressure. And I think that's what the volatility does, is when it stays very, very narrow, in a very narrow range, and standard deviation drops, um, I view that, again, as it's sentiment. VIXA, to me, is a sentiment gauge. So when it's not moving a lot, I believe the market is getting overly confident that it knows what volatility should be at. Um, if it's sticking right around 12, 13, 14, 15, whatever, if it's not changing a lot, I think that's telling us the market's overconfident um, for where the future price direction is going to be. And that overconfidence then leads to the exact opposite. And we get these spikes. And so what my paper looked at was dispersion using standard deviation. And when when that contracted, just about before every single spike in volatility, we would see this contraction this, you hold the beach ball underwater, and the moment that pressure releases, it, it spikes, it jumps higher. The same thing we see in volatility. We saw it before COVID crash, we saw it before Q418, we saw it before Vol'mageddon when we had one of the biggest spikes in February of 2018. If you look back in history, you see this compression happen before just about every spike. Go before the VIX even was created. They've actually recreated what it would have looked like in 1987, and you actually did get compression in the VIX before the 1987 Black Monday crash. Um, so before we even had the VIX, you had the same um, setup, the same environment um, that preceded these spikes. And they happen again and again. And um, not every compression leads to a spike, but every spike has been led by a compression and volatility.
1: And you sort of defined it as below a certain percentile, right? So when, when dispersion was below a certain percentile, that was sort of the indicator that, that was maybe present before these spikes?
2: Yeah. So Again, for the paper, I had to try to quantify it in a certain way without, uh, my goal was I didn't want to um, curve fit the data and say, okay, if you look at the last 16 days, and if it gets below 1.97, I was trying to keep it pretty broad. sense. So I used 20 day look back, which is essentially a month. And then the paper, I just looked at the, um, the past, um, looking at just the percentiles of the last, in the top 10%, which I think at that time was, was 0.86 for the standard deviation. The way I use it now is, is much different. Um, in my, my current trading and the, the systems that I built for, for the VIX. Um, but essentially, it's just whenever, however you want to define it within your own period, different, different look-back periods, different signal thresholds, um, the general idea is just when it becomes very compressed, um, that spring gets really, really tight, we often see volatility will spike higher.
1: And I think you used one that used the VIX, one signal that used the VVIX,
2: and one that used both. Mm-hmm. Was, was either one of those more successful than the others? Um, right now I, I primarily just use the VIX. Um, I, I found that they pretty much, whenever the V VIX would signal, it was almost the same as when the VIX would. Um, there really was, there was so much overlap that it was easier just to watch one versus trying to watch both. I mean, I still watch both. Uh, but my current, the current system that I use is entirely reliant just on the VIX compression. Um, cause they're pretty synonymous with each other. And we, we've seen some pretty significant
1: volatility spikes post you, when you wrote this paper, mm-hmm. how is it, how have the conditions been sort of in the, in the out-of-sample data past when you wrote the paper in terms of predicting volatility spikes?
2: That's what was funny. So I, I won the award in early 2017. Um, and so then I, I got the award, I think like it was March or April of 2017. And then 2017 was the lowest volatility year for like ever. And so of course like you win a paper predicting volatility spikes and you don't get a spike for like 12 months. Uh, was very, very ironic. Everyone wanted to talk about it. And they would say, "Do you see one of these signals coming soon?" No, no. There's <laughs> a ironic to win a VIX paper in the least volatile year. Um, but like I said, we did see um, we saw a compression before Volmageddon. again. We've seen it before, not um, not just these major spikes, but we see it before we get some um, several smaller spikes in volatility. Um, actually, here recently, um, it's it's triggered. We've, we're we're in a period right now where kind of the window's been open for volatility to move higher. As we record this, we are seeing it with VIX now getting near 21. Um, spot VIX near 21. Um, it's continued to, to move higher. So we, we've seen it several times. It happened before the COVID crash. VIX didn't know what COVID was or what wo, where Wuhan, China was, um, but it knew that volatility and sentiment was getting uh, a little frothy, and then eventually um, that happened. Of course, didn't by no means expected us to crash in a month, but when you looked at volatility, it was very compressed. Um, that it's but it started in November and then happened again in January. Um and so in November of, of 2019, I was very much kind of trying to ring a bell, hey, we're gonna have a volatility event and got really dismissed. And then again in January, hey, this is getting really compressed again. And then it just took about a month for it to, to happen. Um, so it's I, I combined it with some other timing indicators to get a little bit better of when the timing of the spikes occur. Um, but I think using the standard deviation gives you kind of an An idea, I always call it an open window. The the window's been open for this event event to occur. Uh, Doesn't mean it'll be tomorrow or next week, traditionally within two weeks, you'll see a spike of what's gonna occur. Um, But it just kind of creates the environment for volatility to really start moving.
1: And from, from my experience on Twitter, for people who follow you on Twitter, when, when you're tweeting out a copy of this paper, there usually might be, a, there might be some reason behind why, why you're actually tweeting it out.
2: Yeah, so I, I have my, I call it my volatility risk trigger that I, I share in my threshold analytics letter. And so I provide much more detail they actually see the signals there. Um, but I do have fun with when it starts to get compressed, at least that component of it that I'll start, hey, if you haven't read my paper yet, here's a good time to read it. Um, it's just kind of a, a fun tongue in cheek way to, to say, hey, volatility is probably gonna get ready to move pretty soon.
1: And you may not be able to talk about a lot of this because I know some of this is proprietary measures. But you talked about you have some new some new measures you sort of added after this in terms of things you look for that might precede volatility spikes. And I'm wondering just in general if maybe you could talk about what some of those might
2: be. No, yeah, I can't. No. <laughs> I, figured you could. I give a lot. I give a lot away on Twitter and in blog posts. But there's some there's some things that I do like. I need to keep a little bit close to the vest. So yeah, the other the other components to my my volatility analysis I don't I don't put publicly. I've had people try to buy them, but I don't don't share them publicly.
0: No, that makes sense. You got to keep something for yourself. Yeah,
2: you have job security somehow.
0: (laughs) All right, so kind of getting to the end here, our our standard closing question, and and we may come out of the technical analysis realm, but if not, that's okay too. Um, But what we like to ask all of our guests is based on your experience in the market, Um, If you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be?
2: Um, I think one answer with kind of two different parts is to keep an open mind. And for, as a technician, wait for price, price um, confirmation. One of the biggest things that I, that I personally have had to overcome and I see a lot of younger technicians or traders is they get a thesis. They get a reason that something's going to happen in the market and they don't the timing is gonna be the hardest part of that. And so if you really are expecting a, a large change in price of a security of a market of the VIX, letting it begin to confirm your thesis before you really try to take advantage of it. Um, there's many people that have been in finance who've been calling for, for a bear market. They've been calling for a crash for 10 years. If they just waited for price to begin to confirm that thesis, they wouldn't have had pie on their face this entire time. And so I think by, by having an open mind to different possibilities, And if you have a thesis, let price begin to confirm it and say, okay, I think the stock is gonna bottom. Does it start to move higher? And so with some of the the bottom trying to uh, dumpster dive that I'll do for trying to bottom tick a stock is let it start to rise. I don't need to buy it on that very bottom day. Let it start, let buyers start to come in before me and then start to ride that potential change in momentum higher. So I think looking for price confirmation and keeping an open mind that maybe you're not right this very moment um, I think can save a lot of people, a lot of pain, um, and was an important lesson I've learned uh, through, through my time as a portfolio manager and technical net, uh, technician. That's great.
0: Great. Thank you. Um, if people want to learn more about your research, your firm, uh, follow you on Twitter, where can they go and what can they see?
2: Yeah. So my, my blog is athrasher.com. Um, my research service is thrasheranalytics.com. Um, I'm really active on Twitter at Andrew Thrasher. And then I manage money for financial enhancement group and our website's yourlifeafterwork.com. But um, all my information's on my blog at athrasher.com can point people in all the other directions. So that's probably the best place to find me.
0: That's awesome. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, like I said at the, at, at the beginning, very different uh, investment process uh, than what we run, but I've certainly learned a lot today. So thank you, Andrew.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thank you.
0: Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at jjcarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.